Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and let's change change uh, uh, pages here on in our service and let's grab our Bibles. Take those out. We're going to dive into the Word of God. Uh, we also gave you a bulletin at the front door. If you want to take that out, I'm going to draw your attention to the fill in the blank here in a moment. As we're getting there, let me uh, give you a few announcements as we kind of get started. One is that next weekend is our uh, Christmas musical. It's called A Christmas Musical. All right. Now, this, if you've never been to one of ours before, they are... They're all about humor. They're all about laughing and joking around and having fun with the idea of what's going on during our season. It's about a church trying to put on a Christmas play and what goes on and all that and what it's really about and what it's not about. And there's choreography and acting and they memorize so much stuff and put so much effort into these productions. Uh, I hope that you bring your family out and enjoy that. It's free. It's just a night to come on out. Relax, smile, laugh, and enjoy the Lord. So uh, that's going to be Friday night and Sunday night. So Friday night at 7, Sunday night at 6. Um, also, you'll notice that uh, these might be out in the lobby. I need you to grab some of these. These are your invitations to bring friends to our Christmas services. As you'll notice, a lot of things fall in on our service time. So we're going to have two Christmas Eve services we're going to have our same service times throughout the weekend. They are going to be specifically themed around describing what God has done for us, what Jesus Christ was to us and is to us. So these are little tickets that you can grab. It has a map on the back. You can hand those out to your friends and invite them to come. Which brings me to one other issue I'd just like to draw your attention to real fast. And that is last weekend. Last weekend, we got a lot of feedback. A lot of discussion was generated about last weekend. Some of it was really positive, and they thought, man, that was a brilliant concept, and oh, I love the little kids and the fuzzy little lambs and everything like that. That was the best thing I've ever seen. Other people said, oh my gosh, I was horrified. That really didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. Now, here's what happens. We as a staff came together, and we discussed it. We got a lot of feedback from you, and there's certain things I want to share with you. Some of you were brokenhearted because in the flow of the service, it felt very disjointed from happy, cute little sheep to, oh my gosh, there's a message that feels like my face is melting off, right? Now, some of you said, I brought my neighbor who's never been to church and I brought them to see the fuzzy lambs, but now it looks like you're being mean to them. Now I'm embarrassed. Okay, here's the thing. It breaks our heart for you to feel tense and nervous and oh no, and, and I finally got an opportunity to love on my neighbor and now it just went so odd. Okay, we hear you. We get it. When we went through that, I'm so proud of our staff. I'm proud of their humility. I'm proud of how much they put into the production. I'm so proud of the fact that the teachers came up here and taught through that material when they don't always necessarily normally do that. I'm very, very proud of our kids' production. The problem was not the pieces. The problem was they were on the same weekend. And it created a lot of disjointed feeling. And so for some of us, that was very hard. It was not our best flow. It's something that we went through and said, how can we do it different? We don't want to do that again. But I need you also to understand, we're never going to back away from tough messages. 
that obviously, if I'm the pastor, we're always going to end up beating up on someone, right? So obviously, we are very serious about some of the messages that we bring. However, we need to do a better job in terms of planning. That was where we ran into some great difficulty. The reason why I bring all that up is that you go, listen, I brought somebody last week and it didn't go so hot. Now you're giving me a bunch of tickets to bring other people. Why in the world would I do that? All right. Here's the reason. There are people that need to know about Jesus. And this service is designed knowing that they're coming. This is a service designed to say, we want you to welcome, be welcomed, and we want to tell you about the person we love the most. So, if you want to invite somebody to this service, I just need you to know, and I can let you know, I'm the one teaching it. And this is a time for me to be able to bless them and love on them. All right? Does that make sense? I really appreciate all of your feedback and all your thoughts. Most of you just thought about stuff and didn't get a chance to share it with us, but we hear your heart. And our goal is to love on you, challenge you, but love on you. All right? Okay, final things as we transition out of this. Um, Israel trip. Remember our original goal was just to make Russ wear a chicken suit. Everybody remember that? Okay. Well, we originally set it up, and I was trying to contain the amount of numbers of people that could go, and so we had capped it at around 50 people, and we said, well, if we get 30 people or so, we're going to go ahead and make Russ wear a chicken suit because that humiliates him, and that makes us laugh. Now, we skyrocketed past that right off the bat. In the first week, we blew those numbers out, and we had a big waiting list. On the waiting list are you. We had a really, really hard time saying that someone couldn't go that wanted to go. So my staff, who's soft-hearted, leaned on me and pressured me to change the trip so they could go. So here's what we did. We broke it out, raised the number, split it out into two buses so more people could go. What we did is raise the number to 70. That has allowed eight spots left. Some of you have been praying about it and said, oh, I missed that opportunity. I'm not going beyond 70. I'll tell you right now. So we're going to cap it at that. If you are interested, jump online, sign up for that, or talk with some of our staff about going. Okay, that's it. We're probably not going to talk about that much more because most of you are not going with us over to Israel this time. I want you to be thinking about next time. All right, because maybe that would be an awesome opportunity of hearing about Jesus Christ in the very place where he lived. Would you take your Bibles out and turn with me to 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Um, if you don't have a Bible, did we already hand them out? Did everybody, if you don't have a Bible, let's raise our hands. I think we have a few more that don't have Bibles up here, so our team will go grab Bibles and they'll bring them to you. We have a few more up front. Sorry about that. I threw you guys off a little bit. Now, we are in part eight of our First Timothy series, which means we wrap it up next week. It will be all done, and we will have locked that book away. And today, we have all sorts of unusual things that are lumped together. It's almost as if, as Paul is closing up his message, he said, Listen, Timothy, there's a couple groups of people I need to talk to real fast. And he deals with slavery, false teachers, and the wealthy kind of seemingly unconnected. However, I don't believe it's unconnected at all. Here's the heart of what I want you to think about today. What role does God have you in? How do you embrace that? How do you not long for a different role? 
How do you lock in to what God wants for you that it might glorify him? The fill in the blank in front of you is this. We all have a role to fulfill to glorify God. We all have a role to fulfill to glorify God. And God isn't going to give us all the same role. As a matter of fact, if you sprinkle salt, and remember, we're the salt and light of the world. If you sprinkle salt on a meal, you want it evenly placed out there. God will put us in all strata of society. Some of us will be ministering more to the poor because they are right next to us. Some of us will be ministering to the wealthy because those are our friends and our scenario. Many of us will be ministering to the middle class. Some will be ministering in the business world. Some will be ministering in a religious context. But God has you where he has you on purpose. Don't long to get out of that. Long to be used in that. There's a couple things we need to know as we launch out because when you start talking about an issue that we're going to start off with, which is the issue of slavery, there's some things we need to understand that are a little different than maybe we're used to. So why don't we do this? Why don't we go ahead and just read the first couple verses to get a tone? And then I want to give you some background, some context, some history that will help you to understand. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says to this young pastor, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Now, those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Would you pray with me for the word this morning? Heavenly Father, we submit under your teaching and under your leadership. For some of us, Lord, these messages cut right to the core of our heart, of things we're wrestling with, we're frustrated about, things we don't understand. Change us today. That not only that we would understand, but we would have a heart to run towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Slavery. What an odd topic. Not for Paul's friends. In Paul's day, it is estimated that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That is almost the entire working class. Slavery was common and slavery was a fact of life. It's a little different than how we think of slavery because of our messed up history in America. In America, we have this great embarrassment, which was we began to divide out by ethnicity. It's wrong. It's horrible. I'm not going to say it's all right in any way, shape, or form. It's absolutely contrary to the heart of God. And when I look through and realize that the church allowed it as long as they did, I'm embarrassed. And I wonder, what am I allowing right now that later on I'm going to be embarrassed about? But the slaves back in this area of the world, in the ancient world, in Paul's day, it was a very different scenario. It was not about ethnicity. It was not about color. Why? Because they're in the Mediterranean region, which is the center hub of international activity. Everybody was a different color. It was all sorts of crisscrossing. That was not a problem. No one had a concern about color. 
They had slaves because of war. They had slaves because they captured someone else. And when Rome was going out and dominating the world, they would grab all these people and force them into labor. People that were highly educated, people that were commanders in their world, people that were high level in all different ways, politically, religiously, business-wise, it didn't matter. They grabbed them all and forced them into labor. So you could very well have a whole class of slaves that are better educated than all their masters. If you had a good master, for some of them, a life of slavery was better than a common laborer because you had meals, you had a home, you had provision. If you had a bad master, your life was miserable because they own you. This is an idea we do not get. Although we're going to apply all this part of the message to an employer-employee relationship, And I want you to think about how you're treating your boss and how you're dealing at work. I need us all to apply it there, but that's not what it means specifically. It's talking about slavery, something that most of us do not understand. We've never been owned. We've never had someone have the access of life and death in our lives. Some of us have spent some time in prison. Where someone tells you when to wake up and when to go to sleep. What you're going to eat and what you will do that day. That's probably the closest that any of us have ever been to being owned by someone else. What do we do when the church shows up in that environment? You can imagine that as Christianity comes out and it starts to talk to the poor and the disenfranchised and the hurting and the lost, huge amount of new early Christians in the first church were slaves. They would rush into the church and all of a sudden their whole life was turned upside down. On the outside, they were owned. There was a master, there was them, and they never hung out. All of a sudden they'd walk into church and their master sitting right next to them in a seat, hearing the same message, hearing a message that says all men are equal, how disruptive in your spirit, all of a sudden you would have slaves who began to go higher up in the church and began to lead their masters. How awkward is that? In church, I'm over you. We step out of church, you're over me. How do we deal with that oddity? That's why Paul's writing about this. But let me ask the basic question that I think is probably in most of our spirits if we have not already reconciled this. Why doesn't the Bible just say slavery is wrong and early Christianity vehemently begin to fight it? You go, well, it kind of does. You remember there's that book Philemon. And it's all about a slave owner that's a Christian and Paul's getting on his case about Onesimus, his slave. So it kind of does talk about the fact, well, it's equality and that's not right and blah, blah. Why doesn't it come right out and fight an atrocity like that? There's all these slaves. Why don't you go up and begin to rise up a movement against the Roman Empire and say you're treating people like garbage. You don't own another person. Stop it. I think there's three primary reasons why. 
first one is this. Christianity is about changing the core of a man, not the symptoms of a bad heart. What does that mean? It means this. It's deeper than stopping the outside. Number two. The Roman Empire would never allow a religion or anything else to lead an uprising of their whole economics. So, Christianity, if they took on that fight, would no longer be about Jesus. They'd be about a political uprising. And that was not the fight they needed to fight at that time. Has Christianity shied away from fights? No. That's why most of us got persecuted and killed. We're not afraid, but there's a timing issue. Third major reason, Christianity would root out slavery at a deeper level. As it begins to explain how we are created, as it begins to introduce equality, as it begins to rise up from within, it can stop slavery without a war. And it can stop it permanently. If I fight with you over slavery and I force you to stop doing it, you're still a slave owner in your heart. I just made you not do it outwardly. If I change you from within, you're no longer a slave owner at all. And that is what Christianity is really about. Last thing I'll say on this issue. The Bible talks a lot about us being slaves of Christ. Though there is the term servant thrown in there, we're a servant, that's just a nice way of saying slave. We are slaves of Christ, which means he owns us. And we need to be all right with that. There is no dishonor there. There's no dishonor in the idea of humility. Why? Because Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but made himself nothing and came down as a slave. Our Jesus, our King, was all right with that title. That means I have no problem pinning it on my shirt in the right context. Amen? Amen. Let's dive into this. So, he starts out, he said, now... All of you, meaning all Christians, who are under the yoke of slavery, meaning you are slaves, there's nothing really you can do about it at this point. This is your lot in life. And I'm sure there was joyful slaves and joyful free men and miserable slaves and miserable free men. I wonder how much of a difference there really was because of life situation. But all of you who are under the yoke of slavery, under non-believing masters... You should consider their masters worthy of full respect. That whole phrase is normally used for God. You should consider, not just emotionally, I feel like this. Consider the facts. They own you. Then treat them with full respect because they are above you. You do that. Why? So that... God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Does it matter what the world thinks of the church? I know a lot of us get that little rebellious spirit and go, I don't care. You better care. Why? Because we're here for what reason? We are all here for one particular purpose, and it's what? The glory of God. 
If God is not being glorified in the church, we're messing up. We should care what the world thinks of the church. Unfortunately, we only care about the wrong stuff. We care, oh, we want the church, the whole world to know that we're a powerful political force. No! How about we are known because we are just like Jesus? How about we're known for our love? How about we're known for our compassion? How about we're known for good stuff and not just bad stuff? I think that's important. He said, so I want you to do this so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Now, those who have believing masters, Christians, are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. Why would a Christian slave show less respect to a Christian master? Shouldn't you think that they'd be thankful for that? Well, I don't know. Let's make it practical. You're hanging out in church with your master. They're sitting there listening to the same message, yet they still haven't freed you. You bitter? You irritated? Well, you're listening to the message. You know we're equal. You know that we're all the same in Christ Jesus. Why are you still my master? God said, hold up. I'm working on them. In the meantime, you don't look at them any different. You respect the office. Or maybe there's this idea that you show less respect because you try to play the card, right? Oh, you're a Christian. I'm a Christian. Come on, man. Let's let it slide. We're both the same in Jesus. I know who you are in church. You know what? Come on, so what? All right, kick a little bit more down to me. You know what? Maybe I could just take this day off and it's no big deal. And maybe if I work less hard, you're a Christian, you're going to forgive me anyway. Stop. If any of you are working currently in an environment where you have a Christian boss and you're working less hard because they're a Christian, you are absolutely wrong. Why? Because you're taking advantage of a brother or sister. Knock it off. We don't do that. I will tell you, and if you've been in this church for any length of time, I pound this drum. Solid work ethic is Christian and honors the Lord. Work hard. Especially if you have someone that is a Christian above you. Why? Because all your efforts are pouring in and blessing a Christian. That's cool. You're supposed to love them as family. Why wouldn't you want to bless your family? These are the things you are to teach and urge them. Then he shifts over. He says, by the way, I got another group that I have an issue with. False teachers. I've been talking about them the whole time. But Timothy, I got I to throw this last stuff in there before we get out of here. If, and the Greek means, and it's really happening. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. Well, that's pretty clear. It says, if you do not hang on to the hygienic, healthy teaching of God, a proper biblical attitude, what is expressed in this, and you just start going off on your opinion, and you're leading people astray, and I'm actually a big dog, you need to listen to me, I'm all about my wisdom and my knowledge. What? Why would you deviate and think that your way is better than God's way? Are you that conceited? I love the description in Greek. It says wrapped up in a mist. It means you're so full of yourself, you can't even think clearly anymore, and you're now stupid. He said, that's what you're doing. 
You're walking around so puffed up. I'm the man. I know what I'm talking about. You just need to listen to me. Follow me. Blah. Every time you direct them to Jesus, you don't direct them just to you. That's a mistake. They are conceited and understand nothing. They're diseased in their thinking is the phrase. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife, malicious talk and evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. One of the ways you can tell when someone's way out of line in their heart in a church is how they handle controversy. If they dig their heels in and it's no longer about compassion, love, and understanding, but it's about being right and dominating and competing against other people, someone's out of line. Are there people like that in church? Yeah, there are whole churches full of people like this. You especially begin to understand something's wrong with them. If you challenge them with a different point of view, how do they react? Do they start insulting you? Personally, they will just shut you down and shame you and just make sure they win. That is not acceptable. Something's wrong with your heart. Why can't you throw out on the table and say, this is what I see? Oh, you disagree with that. All right. I obviously don't see it your way. What are we talking about? Well, I see it this way. All right, cool. I can see where you come from. I'm not going to agree with you. Why can't we come with much more of a humble attitude and still strong? Without walking in with this whole arrogant attitude, I have the corner market on truth, you're an idiot for not agreeing with me, and I'll destroy your character. Something's wrong with that person. Right? You guys, this is how most people in churches live. I can control you by legalism. And I can shame you to not disagree with me. That's not okay. These men have been robbed of the truth by Satan. And they think that godliness, public ministry, is a means to financial gain. What? Where did they get that idea? That doing this kind of stuff, that going out and ministering to other people and doing what Jesus asked you to do. When did the Great Commission become a way to get loaded with cash? How did that come into play? Well, I think two reasons made it very natural in the church. Number one, in a church, you realize that the guy that talks up front tends to get more respect and more money. So why not head that direction? Some young people would go, hey, I want that as my career choice. I'm going to go run up there. I can match two things that I love, and, and then I could do that, and everybody would like me, and blah, blah, blah. Oh, come on. That's not true. But some people see that. I have had friends of mine literally tell me, I'm going to go to this church for a while, and I'll minister there, but that will give me a chance to get this church over here that's bigger. What? What'd you just say? You're hopping on a ladder? This is your career path. I thought this was about people. Now, there's going to come a time, I think, in every pastor's life when God may well call them on and go, you're moving over to this area. I need you to minister to this group. And yes, it may be bigger. But it better be because God called you out. Not because you think you can get more. Come on. That's not right. 
This is not a career path. Some of the best pastors I've ever met never wanted to be pastors in the first place. They got forced into this gig, right? That's my story. I didn't want to do this. God made me. This is not a career path, right? I had a whole different idea. Now, the second reason why it captured in the early ancient church this idea of, i got to be that guy. Why did false teachers get so popular? Because in the Greek culture, which was still heavy in Rome at the time, an orator, someone that could speak well, was famous. We have movie stars. They had speakers. They could come out and get thousands of people to come show up and pay them huge amounts of money and get super famous because they were good with words. Well, now all of a sudden, all those guys who maybe didn't make it in that circuit realized that the church would pick them up. And they began to use the church for their gain. Paul said, do you know how sick that makes me? He said, by the way, Timothy, let me spend the rest of the time here. I want to talk about wealth. Now, that everybody wants to be wealthy. Everybody seems to want to be rich. And these guys are doing radically weird things just to get rich. Can I please talk about rich Christians for a moment? Godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to be loaded in this life? How about being content? How about... Doing what God wants you to do. How about serving him and glorifying him and finding all your value in maximizing his name? How about locking in and being content with what God has for you? Hmm. Maybe that's a different way of thinking for you. For we have brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. What does that mean? It's a practical statement that accumulation of wealth is absurd. You're not taking it with you. What, why are you amassing so much cash? Are you going to use it in the next life? No, no, no. I'm building a, a, a dynasty. I'm going to leave it to my kids. What if your kids are stupid? What if they ruin it all? Then what did you work for? You spent your whole life working for what? Options for your kids? Is that what you're working for? Accumulation for the sake of accumulation doesn't work. It has to be accumulation for a reason. What is that reason? If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul said in Philippians 4.11, he said, listen, I've been loaded and I've been poor as a dog. And I've learned to be content no matter what. I don't care if I have a lot of cash or nothing. It doesn't change my world. I just do what God asked me to do. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. People who want to get rich. I think all of us at some point want to get rich. Because it sounds fun, right? Oh, a lot of new toys. I can pay off all my bills. Maybe I can pay off my house. That'd be awesome. The word does not mean wishful thinking. Oh, that'd be nice. The phrase in Greek means it is your passionate plan and focus of life meaning all you can think about is the almighty dollar every day you wake up and you go how can i make more and it consumes you people who are locked into this idea that money is going to solve their problems have fallen into a trap and been overcome by the enemy it says 
and it will plunge like sinking a ship. It will plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. All right. For 2000 years, that's been misquoted. Can we please clarify? What did it not say? Money is the root of all evil. Didn't say that. What did it say? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money's not the problem. We're the problem. Money's not the problem. Hearts are the problem. Money's a neutral. It's just a thing. But when your heart is bad, it will twist it. The Bible never said poverty is holy. It's not. It doesn't matter what you have. It matters where your heart's at. Can money cause problems? Can money destroy? Yeah, it can. Does it have to? No, it doesn't. But sometimes it's terrible. Some people, and that phrase in Greek means, and Timothy, you know what I'm talking about. You know who I'm talking about. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves, impaled themselves with many griefs, pain, sorrow, heartache. Is that true? Yesterday morning, Mark Madoff was found hung in his home with a dog leash. He committed suicide. 46 years old. Who is Mark Madoff? The son of Bernie Madoff. Anybody know that name? Bernie Madoff ran the largest Ponzi scheme, a stealing of people's investments up to $20 billion. He is now currently serving a 150-year sentence. His son killed himself yesterday morning. Why? Some go, well, because he was involved in its guilt. Hold up. He was never charged with anything. Neither he nor his brother. Some people go, well, he benefited off his dad and blah, 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 blah. Stop. His dad started it. Greed killed his son. Physically. Two years to the day that his dad was busted, He was found hanging in his home. Sometimes money destroys families. But sometimes it doesn't. Yesterday I was driving to church and I was listening to some news stations. And I came upon a show I never listened to. But I happened to hear something that intrigued me. I listened to the interview on the way to church. And it was one of the most intriguing, moving business interviews I've ever heard. It was with a man by the name of John uh, Huntsman. Anybody ever heard of this guy, John Huntsman? He runs now, he has a piece of his business that runs the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City. He's a Mormon guy. He was listed a couple years back as the 47th richest man alive. He started out to make some of his money to launch his first business. He worked in a company called KTEL Records. Anybody remember those? Sell them on TV, the whole idea, that was the first company that ever did a compilation album, this idea of a whole bunch of different bands. He got his money together and started his first company and went into plastics. His company was the one that designed the Big Mac box that closes like this. He ended up becoming extraordinarily rich and worked through different things. And he is loaded. He said, my goal in this life is to die broke. Why? He is one of the number one giving men in the world. 
Why? Did it start just now? No, he has always been that way. He is ferocious about charity. How do we know that? Because 20 years ago, he gave a huge sum of money to a charity. That a person traced the money back to him, found out it was the family that gave it. They went and they took his son and kidnapped his son at knife point and took him away as a ransom. They were going to kill him if he did not give more money to a different organization. They called the FBI. The FBI came in. One of the FBI agents got stabbed by the same knife, almost died. They got the kid out, back home safe. That night, when they came back together, the family prayed together. Now, they're Mormon. They prayed together, and he said to his family, we're going to pray that this incident would not stop us from giving to charity. We do not want this to soil helping other people because we tried to help other people and it came back and bit us and almost killed our son. I will not stop giving. That's extraordinary. He's a man of extreme honesty. Money did not corrupt him. How do we know? Well, in the very beginning when he was poor... He and his wife were married and they only had a little bit of money and she would give him an allowance every day for his lunch. When he got his allowance, unbeknownst to her, every day he would take it and drop it in the mailbox of a neighbor who was worse off. And she didn't know that. For years he went without lunch. So they would have something. That was when he was poor. When he was rich... A couple years ago, he said, what I used to do is I would take my business and I'd sell off portions of it, let other people manage it for a while, and then buy it back when it was healthier. He said, I went to, to Shell Company and I sold off 40% of my company. I went to him and I said, hey, let's make an agreement. He said, we didn't have any documents. I looked him in the eye and I shook his hand and I said, a handshake's important to me. Look me in the eye. I will sell you this per- portion of my business for $54 million. They agreed on it. Then his team messed up. They took a really long time to draw up the documents. A whole long hassle went on. By the time they drew up the documents and signed it, the other company came back to him and said, John, you're one of the nicest guys I've ever met. So I have to be honest with you. In the time that you have waited to sell your company, it's gone from $54 million to $250 million in value. I am not comfortable with just taking all that from you. Why don't we split it? I'll pay you the $54 million, but why don't we split the $100 million? You take $100 million, I'll take $100 million from what it made. And John goes, absolutely not. I shook your hand. I only want $54 million. That's what handshakes are about. And he denied an extra $100 million for the sake of honesty. Does wealth have to destroy someone? No. Because money isn't the problem. If you have a heart submitted to the Lord, then it can do great things. The church has always been supported by wealthy Christians. Jesus' ministry was supported by wealthy women Christians. Paul, when he first got to Europe, hung out. And who supported him? Lydia, a wealthy woman. All throughout history, it's been the case. There's nothing holy about poverty. If you are able to take care of yourself and your family, that opens up the funds that we don't have to support you, and we can support someone that really needs it. Right? 
Everyone always goes, oh, the Bible tells us to give everything away. It does not. It did to one guy. Who? The rich young ruler. Why? Because he made money as God. And if you lose yourself in money, God will tell you the exact same thing. Get rid of all of it because it's in my way. But look at this passage. What does it say? Command those who are rich, Christians, command rich Christians in this present world not to be arrogant. Why would you? You didn't earn that. God let you earn that. No, I'm the one that worked hard and it was my ideas and, oh, now you have a brain tumor. Oh, you're not making anything. Right? No, it's not you. Come on. Do what you're asked to do. Don't be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God. This recession just taught us that. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Is it okay to say, God, thanks, this is really fun? Yep. That's why I gave it to you. Command them to do good. Bless others. To be rich in good deeds. Utilize their gift for the kingdom. And to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Listen. Money's not a problem. Unless you let it be a problem. It can be a blessing. And I'll tell you this right now. I was given a gift of speaking. Part of my job is to utilize it at any point in my life to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean I can't do other things. It just means that I must utilize the gift God gave me for the kingdom of God. If you are good at business and excellent at making money, guess what you better do? Make as much money as you possibly can because you're utilizing your gift. Then the whole point is, what does God want to do with it? John Huntsman said, I keep a quote in the back of my desk by Andrew Carnegie that said, the only reason we make money is because our brothers and sisters might someday need it. He said, I want to die broke. I want to give it all away to all the right places. The problem with America is greed, not money. What are we going to do with what God gave us? Let's close in prayer and we'll finish out with a thought. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for teaching us a new way to look at things. May we be just what you want, where you want us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.